You're listening to Lost in History with Scott Miller. Tensions in Chicago had been running high for several days in early May 1886. The city had come to a virtual standstill on May 1st, Labor Day, when as many as 60,000 people had marched down Michigan Boulevard seeking an eight-hour working day, two hours shorter than was typical. And three days after that, strikers at the McCormick Reaper Works had clashed with police, leaving several dead. The city thus held its collective breath on May 4th when labor radicals, including a large number of anarchists, planned a demonstration. The location they announced was just off Haymarket Square, near the city's meatpacking and lumber district. The skies were dark and foreboding that night as two to three thousand people assembled near a wagon that would serve as a speaker's platform. Fearing violence, police were marshaled not far away. Chicago's mayor, Carter Harrison, swung by on his way home from City Hall and made sure everybody saw him, repeatedly lighting a cigar. But the man all wanted to hear from was a thin Texan named Albert Parsons. Over the next several hours would unfold one of the most dramatic events in the history of the American labor movement, one that would mark a milestone toward improved working conditions for all Americans, but one that would end tragically for Parsons. Welcome to Lost in History, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of people who shaped the United States, but who you might not have heard too much about. I love the story of Albert Parsons. His journey from young Confederate soldier to labor activist to the center of a courtroom battle that gripped the nation is filled with dramatic twists and a sense of coming doom. Parsons' biography also tells the story of America at a pivotal point in its history, a moment when the country was deeply divided over who should share the spoils of a rapidly expanding economy. On the one side were the famous robber barons, captains of steel and railroads who accumulated vast financial empires. On the other side were their employees, people who toiled for endless days in dangerous conditions for little money. This disparity had in the closing decades of the 19th century given rise to a number of extremist labor movements, including anarchism. Albert Parsons was one of the most famous anarchists of the era. There was little about Parsons that night of May 4, 1886 that outwardly suggested social revolutionary. In contrast to the shaggy-haired, sloppily-dressed radical that populated the movement, Parsons' appearance was that of a long-distance runner, and a dandy at that. He regularly dyed his hair and finely trimmed mustache to maintain a youthful look. Perhaps most surprising was his family stock. While most anarchists were recent arrivals to the United States, often from Germany, Parsons' forefathers had been among America's earliest settlers. Raised by a brother from age five after his parents died, he had grown up on the Texas frontier, and at age 13, he enlisted with the local volunteers, the Lone Star Grays, and fought in the Civil War. Parsons later attended Waco University, now Baylor, and worked in a print shop, winning the respect of the city's elders. Yet there was much more to Parsons than he led on. Deep within him burned a hatred for the ideas he had risked his life fighting for in the Civil War, white supremacy and slavery. He had joined the military, he would later say, for the adventure, not the principles. And Parsons struggled to reconcile what he fought for 
with the loving fondness he felt for his old Aunt Esther, a former slave who had helped raise him with, as he put it, great kindness and a mother's love. It was a shame that tormented him. At age 19, employing his printing skills and brief university education, Parsons founded a newspaper called The Spectator to champion the rights of former slaves and began traveling the state to encourage them to vote. It was an unpopular occupation that turned old friends and the upper crust of Waco against him. Parsons was at various times beaten, shot in the leg, kicked down a flight of stairs, and threatened with lynching. For his friends, confirmation that he had really lost his mind came when word spread that he had married a mysterious woman named Lucy Carter. Lucy claimed to be the daughter of a Mexican and an Indian. Yet her dark complexion and kinky hair led townspeople to whisper she was actually black. Adding to the mystery surrounding her, Lucy offered several different family names and places of birth. Wherever she came from, it was clear there was little place for the couple in Texas. In the winter of 1873, Parsons and his wife arrived in Chicago, only to find the city at one of the low points in its history. The year before, the entire world had been thrown into an economic tailspin by a string of disasters ranging from the Franco-Prussian War to the fallout from speculative and ill-founded investments in railroads. So bad were conditions that the period was simply known as the Great Depression, a name that we have since given to the global economic collapse of the 1930s. Though seemingly every corner of the country was impacted, Chicago had it worse off than most. It was still recovering from a devastating fire two years before. Immigrants had flocked to the city to help rebuild, but now almost all construction had stopped, and Chicago was awash in young, angry men with nothing to do. Parsons himself was able to secure a job at the Chicago Times as a typesetter. But consumed by what he saw around him, he made an easy jump from champion of racial equality to labor activist, and he began reading communist publications. He joined the Typographical Union and the Social Democratic Party. By 1876, the Chicago Tribune noted that Parsons and his cohorts had become a parcel of blatant communist demagogues. Parsons, in fact, was earning quite a reputation for himself. On July 23, 1877, he addressed a crowd of 10 to 15,000 working men near the crossing of Madison and Market Streets. If capitalists engage in warfare against our rights, we shall resist them with all the means that God has given us, he told the crowd. Unwisely for a man who worked at a major newspaper, he also chastised Chicago's media for playing the willing stooge to corporate America. The day after that speech, he learned he'd been fired, and what's more, he was hauled into police headquarters for a two-hour grilling, at the conclusion of which the chief of police delivered a chilling warning. Everything you say or do is made known to me, he said. His life, the policeman told him, was in danger and that he should leave town. Parsons' revolutionary fervor, though, could not be stopped. Not long after the threats, Chicago was consumed by massive strikes against railroads in which one street after another became the scenes of running battles. At one railroad roundhouse, a crowd of 8,000 workers destroyed two locomotives before police chased them off, killing three people in the process. Greatly pained by such violence, 
Parsons represented a group from Chicago at a Congress of Revolutionaries in Pittsburgh in October 1883, at which he listened to speeches advocating the dismantling of the entire American establishment. More full of revolutionary fervor than ever, Parsons returned to Chicago and took over as editor of the radical newspaper Alarm and thrust himself into the center of the city's social revolutionary subculture. Chicago's Haymarket Square was a popular venue for gatherings of the city's radicals. Many worked in the area, and the brick wall of the Crane Brothers Metal Products Factory made a perfect backdrop for speakers. There was room enough for a couple of thousand people to listen, but the area was going to be crowded the night of May 4, 1886, with Parsons scheduled to talk. It looked like rain was in the air that night, and the wind was starting to kick up when Parsons began his remarks. Maybe hoping to diffuse events of the May Day Parade and the McCormick Reaper Works deaths a few days earlier, Parsons made one of his more moderate speeches, calling for workers' rights and an end to violence. To kill an individual millionaire or capitalist would be like killing a flea upon a dog because others would simply follow in his place, he said. Finishing around 10 p.m., Parsons left the rally with his wife Lucy and the couple's two children for a nearby tavern where they ordered a schooner of beer. There was one last speaker, Samuel Feldman, that night, who watched as the crowd melted away on account of the incoming rain. A pair of plain-clothes police officers, though, remained behind. The two immediately grew alarmed at Feldman's speech, which was edgier than Parsons had been. Feldman, for instance, called on the crowd to throttle, kill, and stab the law. The two men rushed for the police station where Captain William Ward and more than 170 police officers were waiting. Ward and his men quickly gathered for a quick time march toward the Haymarket Square. Perhaps only a few hundred people were listening to Feldman when the police arrived and it looked like a possible confrontation would be averted. Someone, however, history would never know who, produced a round bomb about the size of a baseball lit the fuse and hurled it into the police ranks. Made from dynamite and packed with metal projectiles, the device was strong enough to blow out windows and mortally wound one policeman, a young officer named Matthias Dagan. The police responded in blind rage. Fire and kill all you can, shouted Lieutenant James Bowler as he and other policemen emptied their revolvers. Bleeding workers crawled on all fours to escape the line of fire. Others sought shelter in shops, barricading themselves behind tables. How many were actually killed is unclear, but historians estimate perhaps seven or eight workers died and 30 or 40 wounded. For their part, seven police officers would also perish, and perhaps 60 of their number were wounded. Down the street, where Parsons was sheltering from the rain, the noise and the panic was clearly audible. Parsons didn't know what exactly had happened, that all that gunfire suggested a bloodbath. It would be dangerous, he knew, to go home. So he accepted an invitation from a friend to hide at his house. Parsons turned to his wife. Kiss me, Lucy. We do not know when we will meet again. The next day, newspapers reported the bombing and the shootout in grisly detail and demanded immediate retaliation against the radicals referring to them as bloody brutes and red ruffians. 
Teddy Roosevelt wrote from his ranch in the Dakota Territory that his cowboys would love a chance with rifles at one of the mobs. Chicago industrialists, including Marshall Field, Philip Armour, and George Pullman, secretly committed $100,000 to fight revolutionaries. The man everybody wanted was Parsons. A $5,000 reward was offered for his capture. Newspapers around the country carried stories claiming he'd been spotted everywhere from Ohio to Cuba. Police repeatedly turned up at the family home, ransacking the place and smashing furniture, looking for any hint of Parsons' whereabouts. They even grilled his six-year-old son by wrapping him in a carpet and spinning him around. Nobody was willing to talk. Parsons was taking no chances. He shaved off his mustache, and donned a costume that made him look, he said, like a respectable tramp, and he fled Chicago. He immediately made for the bucolic Wisconsin town of Waukesha, where he was sure the police would never look for him. Parsons' plan was to take refuge with a subscriber to the alarm, Daniel Hone. Parsons didn't really know Hone and wasn't sure how he would be accepted. But to his relief, Hone took him in and introduced him around town as his friend, a Mr. Jackson. Using the false name, Parsons successfully melted into the city. He helped out at Hone's factory, did repair jobs, and won over the locals who invited him to lecture at the local church. The fugitive might have stayed there as long as he wanted, but in Chicago, a police crackdown was underway. While Parsons was gone, Chicago police arrested seven of his friends and charged them with murder. The death penalty a possibility. Donors as far away as Bombay and Tokyo chipped in to pay the fees of one of Chicago's best-known lawyers, William Perkins Black. In Wisconsin, Parsons worried that frustration over the inability of the police to find him would only make Black's defense harder. And surrendering himself might show he was confident that no crime had been committed. In June 1886, Parsons arrived back in Chicago and put on respectable clothes. Accompanied by Black, the two entered the Cook County Criminal Court, shocking reporters and police who could not believe that the most wanted man in America was giving himself up. The trial of Parsons and the seven other anarchists began on June 21, 1886, Judge Joseph Gary presiding. Gary was a respected jurist, but publicity surrounding the trial seemed to bring out the worst in him. He made little attempt at objectivity, harshly refusing objections made by the defense, and strangely surrounding himself with head-turning young women who giggled and ate candy. On at least one occasion, a female friend sat on the bench with him, the two doing puzzles. Lawyers had hardly started their arguments when the prosecutors had to concede that many of the police killed in the market that night had died by friendly fire. The trial then came to rest on a single question. Who had murdered the one policeman known to have been killed by the bomb? Officer Dagan. The hunt for Deegan's killer presented the prosecution with a difficult problem. The defendants, all pretty clearly, had not thrown any bombs. Defense attorney Black showed that several of the accused were not even at the Haymarket Square that night. Two others were on the speaker's wagon in full view of the police and could not have thrown a bomb without being seen. To overcome those obstacles, the prosecution attempted to establish that even if the defendants hadn't actually thrown the bomb, they were responsible for motivating whoever did. 
Excerpts from radical newspapers, such as the alarm that incited violence, were read in court. The defendants, Prosecutor Julius Grinnell told the jury, were anarchists who wished to destroy the American government, and for nothing less than the security of the nation, they must return a guilty verdict. On July 19, 1886, the jury retired to the Revere House Hotel to deliberate while a crowd gathered outside, many peering into the hotel's windows for any hint of progress. They would not have long to wait. On the morning of August 20th, the jury filed back into the courtroom. Shortly after 10 a.m., the foreman read the findings. Parsons and seven others were guilty. The penalty? Death. Only one was spared, and he was given 15 years of hard labor. Death, the penalty, had always been possible, but now that judgments had been handed down, it seemed inconceivable. Black was astounded. I was never so shocked in all my experience as I was this morning, he said. The defendants were shaken. Several looked pale and shuffled as they were led from the courtroom. Parsons, though, calmly tied the string of a window shade into the form of a noose and displayed it to the crowd outside, which roared its approval. Hangings were scheduled for December 3, 1886, pending appeal. The Cook County Jail, where the condemned were held, rapidly assumed an odd air, part penitentiary, part backstage at a Broadway hit. Each prisoner was confined in a six-by-eight-foot stone cell, received limited exercise, and was never permitted outside. Yet they were allowed to give interviews, write memoirs, and entertain a steady stream of often fawning visitors. Twice a day at 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., well-wishers lined up to bring the men creature comforts, ham, smoked beef, herring, cheese, and cigars. Two defendants who were bachelors, August Spees and Louis Ling, who one newspaper described as a devil masked in the form of a Grecian god, attracted numerous female visitors. Spees, in fact, developed a relationship with a well-bred Vassar graduate named Nina Van Sant, heiress to a small fortune. When the two announced plans to wed, Spees was told he would not be allowed to attend and arranged for his brother to act as stand-in groom during the ceremony at the Van Sant's family home. Amid the growing celebrity surrounding the case, defense attorney Black filed an appeal with the Illinois Supreme Court, which ordered the convict's execution be delayed while it studied the case. This court agreed that the initial legal proceedings had seen more than their fair share of irregularities, but there was nothing that would change the judgment. There was, however, one last hope, a pardon from Illinois Governor Richard Oglesby. Something of a softy and sympathetic to the working class, Oglesby had watched as petitions streamed in from around the country in support of the condemned. Some 100,000 people, in fact, had signed an amnesty petition including celebrities such as Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw. Feeling the pressure of such support, Oglesby agreed to intervene. He offered to commute the prisoner's sentences to life in prison. All the condemned had to do was submit a formal appeal for clemency, seemingly a small price to pay for one's life. Two, in fact, would take the governor up on his offer. The others, though, refused. Parsons would remain bitterly defiant. Writing from prison, he said, we are ready to meet it like men, like anarchists. One of the condemned, though, had devised a plan for cheating the state's hangman. 
Joining all the reporters, girlfriends, and activist fellow travelers who called on the prisoners was an innocent-looking gentleman with a long, pointed mustache and thinning hair named Dyer Lum. Though well-known as an anarchist, Lum had charmed the prison guards and been given a pass to go directly to the cells. Sometime before November 6, 1887, Lum had two small pipe bombs under his coat and smuggled them into the cell of Louis Ling. Guards would soon find the explosives hidden under Ling's bed and assume they had foiled an anarchist plot. They were wrong. At 9 a.m. on November 10, 1887, a sharp explosion rattled the jail. Rushing to Ling's cell, the source of the noise, guards were confronted with a gruesome sight. Ling had placed a dynamite charge, somehow missed by his guard, in his mouth and lit the fuse. The force of the blast was strong enough to blow off half his face. Bits of flesh and bone were splashed on the walls and the furniture. Yet Ling survived for six agonizing hours as doctors did what they could to ease his pain before he died. With the security lapse of Ling in mind, Chicago cracked down on the circus surrounding Parsons and the others. On the day they were to be executed, November 11th, the city protected the Cook County Jail with 300 police armed with rifles and shotguns. Traffic was diverted and several regiments of militia were put on standby with gatling guns and cannons. So tight was the security, in fact, that Parsons' wife and his two children, who were trying to say their final goodbyes, were not allowed to see him. When Lucy protested, she was taken to jail. The night before the execution, Parsons had slept well, despite the sounds of last-minute work on the gallows. And now he eagerly ate fried oysters for breakfast and could be heard reciting poetry. After reading the newspaper, he told his guard, Now I feel all right. Let's finish the business. Parsons and the three others were dressed in white shrouds that stretched from their necks to their feet. A thick leather belt was placed around their arms. Their hands were fastened behind them. Led single file to the gallows, none of the men resisted. White hoods were fastened over their heads as each was placed before a noose. Several of them shouted out allegiance to anarchy. Parsons was heard to say, Will I be allowed to speak? O men of America, let me speak. Sheriff Matson, let the voice of the people be heard. Oh, but before he could finish, an axeman swung his blade on a rope connected to trapdoors upon which each man stood. The four plunged earthward. It was not a clean drop. Autopsies would show that the fall had failed to break any of their necks. All died from strangulation. Parsons and the Haymarket bombing left a profound imprint on the American labor movement. For many Americans, the events heightened worries about labor radicals, especially the foreign-born, as were most of the Haymarket defendants. It's not hard, in fact, to draw a direct line between the Haymarket bombing and the first Red Scare of 1919, when the country enacted stiff new laws to crack down on violent leftist radicals. But at the same time, the Haymarket executions seemed to fuel workers' rights groups, especially the Knights of Labor, which saw its membership soar. Parades on May 1st would in the years that followed become a tradition of the labor movement. The eight-hour workday, though, which Parsons championed, would not come easily. Through the end of the 19th century and the early 20th, 
industries such as rail, printing, and mining would shorten their workdays only in a gradual, piecemeal fashion. The eight-hour workday would not become national law until the eve of World War II. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach out to me on Twitter at Lost the Letter in History Pod. And be sure to check out my website, www.scottmillerauthor.com. We'll see you next time.